millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 30 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. Valentine's Day in 1945 began like any other day for 74-year-old Charles Walton. Despite his advanced years and rheumatic joints, which required Charles to walk with a stick, 
He had worked as a labourer when local farmers had work available. This particular day, he left his small thatch cottage located on the edge of the village green in the tranquil setting of the picturesque Cotswolds to work at Alfred Potter's farm. Charles had dressed for the job, wrapped up to face the crisp spring weather outside. Although he was receiving a pension, Charles had been working for Alfred Potter and his business L.L. Potter and Sons on First Farm for nine months. Charles's task on February 14th was cutting back the hedges. He left with the tools for the job, a pitchfork and a slash hook. A slash hook is a pruning tool, consisting of a stick with a sharp curved blade attached. Charles was paid by the hour and could start and end his shift when he liked. He set off at 9am and travelled on foot towards the slopes of Meon Hill in Lower Quinton. Charles was a widower. His wife had died 18 years earlier. He shared his rented home with his 33-year-old niece, Edith Isabel Walton. Charles and his wife adopted Edith when she was three years old, after her mother died. Her father was still alive, residing a short distance away in Stratford-upon-Avon. Edith's uncle paid her to keep a tidy home, and she was charged with purchasing all of the necessities needed. Edith worked at a local factory, and at the time she was engaged to her fiancé, Edgar Good. After she finished work, Edith had expected Charles to have returned home, but it was now 6pm and he had not come back. He was usually home by four. Charles was a solitary man, though his niece knew he would not be out with friends, especially without telling her. Edith ventured out across the fields with a neighbour, Harry Beasley, to go to Fur's farm to find her uncle. Harry Beasley had lived next door to the Waltons for the last 23 years. The pair searched the fields, although came up empty-handed. They decided to see Alfred Potter to find out where Charles was. As dusk fell, by torchlight Alfred accompanied Edith and Harry to the fields to find out what had happened to his employee. It was at the edge of Meon Hill, an isolated spot around a mile from the main road, where they found his body. It was a gruesome discovery indeed. Near a hedge in a ditch two fields away from the cottage he called home, the prongs of Charles's pitchfork dug into the ground either side of his neck. The handle was wedged under a hedge to secure it in place. His head was forced back, exposing an injury to his throat. Blood had pulled on the earth below. 
Charles's head was almost severed from his body. A sharp slash hook which Charles had been using that day was coated in blood. It had been used to cut his throat. It was now impaled in his chest. It also appeared as if Charles had been savagely beaten with his walking stick, which was discarded a short distance from the scene. He had what seemed to be defensive wounds to his hands and arms. Upon finding the mutilated body of her uncle, Edith was distraught. But the nightmare was far from over. She would again have to view her uncle's body to make a formal identification. It had been quickly decided that Harry would walk Edith back down the hill while a neighbour was told to contact the police. Alfred Potter was left to stand guard over Charles's body. An officer arrived around 7.05pm. Potter was distraught. He spoke of a chill running through his body. He did not wish to hang around and left police constable Michael Lamazny at the scene. Forensic investigators began their duties at 11.30pm and photographs were taken around midnight. Charles's body was eventually moved at 1.30am early the following morning before it was transported to the mortuary. In the early stages, the scene was managed under the watchful eye of Superintendent Simmons from the Stratford-upon-Avon Constabulary, with assistance from Detective Superintendent Spooner of Warwickshire CID. There appeared to be no motive for the crime, but the attack, at least according to initial reports, was sadistic in nature. A Home Office pathologist, Professor Webster, who worked as a director for the West Midlands Science Laboratory, visited the scene and later completed a post-mortem. Time of death was assumed to be between 1 and 2 p.m. At the time, the press believed the killer was either someone who had been driven mad by alcohol or a, quote, lunatic. It was reported that Charles had a frightened look on his face when his body was found. Based on his injuries, he was not attacked from behind. He would have been facing his assailant. The isolated spot would have only been traversed by workers on the farm or an uninvited party. Charles had been murdered with the very tools he had taken with him for work. The prevailing theory suggested that on the slopes of the hill, Charles had the implements wrestled from him. As both instruments had long handles, the killer then used one of these makeshift weapons to fatally wound his victim from a distance. They pinned Charles to the ground with the pitchfork before continuing the attack. Charles was an elderly gentleman. With arthritic joints, a defence against someone who was more limber would have been almost impossible and it was reported some of the injuries were made post-death. 
Due to the distance between the attacker and victim, the long-handled implements may well have enabled the attack to occur without any blood spatter being projected onto the killer's clothing. It was also possible this meant there would be no injuries to the murderer or damage to their clothing if Charles tried to fight back. Even more striking was the fact the attack had taken place in broad daylight. However, the spot was isolated, a considerable distance from a road or residence. Villagers in Quinton were quick to bolt their doors and lock their windows as news spread of the attack. On Thursday, February 15th, the day after the murder, a request was sent to Scotland Yard asking for their assistance to help solve the mystery. Investigators from Scotland Yard were brought in from London. Chief Inspector Robert Fabian was joined by his associate, Detective Sergeant Albert Webb. On their journey, they were joined by Detective Sergeant Saunders, who spoke fluent Italian, something that would come in handy as the inquiry unfolded. Both the areas that surrounded Charles Walton's home and the scene of the crime were sealed off and scoured by police officers. The RAF were employed to create an aerial map of the field so they could plot Charles's final journey from his front door to the spot where he was killed. Plaster casts were made of every single shoe print found around the scene. Each was accounted for and traced back to its owner. It was decided by the investigating officers that none of them had committed the murder. Almost 500 villagers from Lower Quinton and its surrounds was subsequently questioned by Fabian and Webb. The prime suspect was immediately Charles's employer Alfred Potter. He had been overseeing the work on Furs Farm since 1940. It was theorised he could have owed Charles money for his labour, and Alfred was killed to avoid payment. In his initial account to the police, Potter claimed he was with another farmer, Joseph Stanley. They had a quick drink in a pub called the College Arms where they stayed for 15 minutes until midday drinking two rushed pints of Guinness. They both then travelled to Stanley's farm observing the repair to a tractor. Potter tended to his animals and put away his tools. While he was feeding the sheep and calves a bale of straw, he saw someone he thought was Charles working in the distance, but he was too far away to stop and talk. They were around 500 yards apart. This was approximately 12.30pm. Based on what he had seen of the hedges, Potter said Charles had done about half an hour's work between this sighting and the state of the hedges when Charles's body was found. Potter then said he travelled back home visiting the cowshed on the way. He noticed that one of the animals became trapped in a ditch, so he borrowed a tractor to rescue it before he began milking the cows. 
Potter would later say that Charles had no enemies and there appeared to be no reason why Charles would have been murdered. Other insights Potter had into Charles's routine was that he always stopped for a late breakfast at 11am and then worked through until 4pm. As the days passed and countless interviews were undertaken, there was no definitive suspect or even a motive. Robbery could not be established, although Charles Walton's watch was missing. Police Constable Michael Lamazny, who examined the body, said that he found no money on Charles's person, but discovered a watch chain in Charles's waistcoat pocket with no corresponding watch. No one was sure if Charles would have carried any money. However, it was clear that he did not go anywhere without his watch. The white metal timepiece that was now missing never left his side according to his niece. It was inscribed with some distinctive code-like markings made by the watch's previous owner, Edgar Jones. The team of Royal Engineers used mine detectors across the field to find the missing watch, hoping the timepiece might be covered in the killer's fingerprints. Frustratingly, they found nothing more than rabbit snares. Rumours suggested that the person responsible for the killing knew the area. A press conference was held on Saturday, February 17th, as the police sought answers. An inquest was opened on Tuesday of the following week. A detailed report by Home Office pathologist Professor Webster was submitted to a South Warwickshire coroner during the inquest at Stratford-upon-Avon. Webster had seen the body at the scene and completed further analysis in a mortuary. Seven members of the inquest jury were offered the details of the attack in which it was made clear the wounds to Charles Walton were not self-inflicted. The findings described how both of the implements Charles Walton had used in his job were found embedded in his body. The killer had stabbed the slash hook and plunged the pitchfork into his victim. The pitchfork had been employed with some force, being pushed three-quarters of its length into the body. The fork was pierced through Charles's neck, pinning him to the ground, as blows were rained down on his chest. Three separate injuries were inflicted to the front of the neck with the slash hook. Every major artery was severed. The slash hook was then stabbed through the chest, leaving one of the lungs punctured. There was also an injury to the back of Charles's left hand which would have come from a sharp instrument, although it could not be confirmed what. It was possible this injury was inflicted during the attack. A walking stick that belonged to Charles was found a short distance away from his body, covered in blood with several matted hairs stuck to it. Charles's head exhibited signs of bruising and lacerations, 
numerous ribs on the left side of his body were broken. Some of Charles's clothing was torn, and some undone, although it could not be established if they were removed with care post-death or pulled in haste during the attack. His cap lay under his head. His braces were broken at the back, although undone at the front. His fly was loosened. Despite his age and health issues, it appeared Charles had tried to defend himself. There were bruises to his hands and in conjunction with the cut, this suggested he made every effort to fight back. Professor Webster said, He was a remarkably healthy old man for his age. He died from shock and hemorrhage due to the grave injuries to the neck and chest caused by a cutting weapon and a stabbing weapon found embedded in him. Harry Beasley, a neighbour to Charles, described finding the body, how he comforted Edith and their journey back home. I could see the deceased was in a terrible state, and I stepped back so that Miss Walton should not see him. There was a big gash in his neck. Edith had left the inquest with her fiancé before the gruesome details of her uncle's death were accounted. Alfred Potter stayed with the body while Harry Peachy, coincidentally in a neighbouring field, was alerted and told to contact the police. With the investigation ongoing, the inquest was adjourned for a month. The jury were told if the person responsible was found, the jury's services would no longer be required. The coroner felt that a month was more than enough time to track down the person responsible a sentiment that Chief Inspector Fabian agreed with. Detective Superintendent Saunders, who had accompanied Chief Inspector Fabian, decided to visit a military camp in Long Marsden, located about two and a half miles away from Lower Quinton. This site included an area where prisoners of war were being held. Locals had said among the many prisoners, Italians were a regular sight in the area, often seen in the town buying sweets or cigarettes. The day of Charles's murder was no exception. When Sergeant Saunders visited the camp, he found out prisoners were permitted to wander the area freely on foot or by bicycle. There were over 1,000 POWs, although there was no official log to track their whereabouts. One of those individuals was seen, not only by a delivery driver but some of the other prisoners, cleaning blood from his jacket and hands while in a ditch. After witness reports were taken and the suspect's clothing seized for laboratory testing, it would later turn out the blood came from a rabbit. Charles Walton was thought to have been killed in the early afternoon. Now this time, many prisoners were six miles away in Stratford-upon-Avon to see a play, 
while others had visited the cinema. Still, despite the initial suspicions from locals and the police, it did not appear that any prisoners of war were ever seriously considered to have killed Charles Walton. The search for answers appeared to be a riddle that was becoming increasingly difficult to solve. Weeks later, on Friday, March 2nd, friends and family gathered in the Quinton Parish Church to pay their respects. The traditional Christian hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, was included in the service, attended by Charles's brothers, Edith Walton, and some of Charles's other nieces and nephews. They were told by the vicar how highly Charles was thought of, a man liked by all. Little progress had been made during the first month of the investigation. Despite the initial optimism voiced by the coroner and chief inspector Fabian, the inquest into the murder was resumed at Stratford-upon-Avon Town Hall. On Tuesday, March 20th, the inquest jury returned a verdict. Attending the proceedings were Chief Inspector Fabian of Scotland Yard, Detective Superintendent Spooner of Warwickshire CID, and Superintendent Simmons from the Stratford-upon-Avon Constabulary. The coroner said that as no one had been charged, the investigation was ongoing. The seven male jurors were provided with a summary of the evidence they had previously heard from Charles Walton's niece Edith, his neighbour Harry Beasley, and pathologist Professor Webster. The coroner described the injuries that Charles Walton suffered. The victim's blood-stained clothing, walking stick, and the two implements used to take his life were produced during the legal proceedings. The first doctor called to the scene was Dr. McWinney. He observed the body, although made no attempts to move it or even touch it. This was sometime around 7.30pm. The doctor was present when Professor Webster arrived. After the pair conversed at the scene, they both agreed it was apparent the wounds were not self-inflicted. Alfred Potter, who was the last person to see Charles alive, offered evidence about what he did on February 14th, with midday and beyond the focus of the coroner's questioning. Potter was asked if Charles carried money on his person. Potter did not know. He said that he had seen Charles's missing watch, although he had never seen the watch chain that was found on Charles's body. Potter said he had not seen Charles on the morning of February 14th. It was not until he was feeding the animals in the fields, Potter believed that he saw Charles in the distance sometime around 12.30. This was initially reported to the police, but now on reflection, Potter said he could not be sure if it was Charles. 
the man at least seemed to be wearing similar clothing. Potter said he only glanced at the person in the distance and could not confirm if he was working. When Potter returned home, his wife was there. He read the newspaper for five minutes before he assisted a farmhand to milk the cows, then again went back home for his lunch prepared by his wife at 1pm. He was observed returning to work at 2.10pm. Potter's wife supported his timeline. When back at work, Potter found a heifer in a ditch, but he could not rescue it with one of his own tractors as the vehicle was too cumbersome. He contacted an acquaintance, a Mr. Russell, for assistance over the phone, although Russell was not available. Potter decided to drive to see him so he could borrow a lighter tractor. The heifer was rescued and Potter continued milking the animals. After he ate his dinner, at approximately 6.15pm, it was then both Edith Walton and Harry Beasley knocked at Potter's door, asking where Charles was. Potter said he would accompany the pair in the search, taking them to the field where Charles had been pruning the hedges. As torchlight illuminated the scene, Potter shouted, Don't come any nearer. You mustn't look at this. Alfred Potter said that when they found the body, he did not intend to disturb the scene. He could see the injuries to Charles Walton. Harry Peachy, who worked on a neighbouring farm, was ordered to inform the police. Potter was told by Harry Beasley to check if Charles Walton was dead. Potter said at that moment he briefly tried to remove the hook embedded in the man that he had employed for the last nine months. It was this action that removed any other fingerprints from the handle. The pitchfork had been so forcefully embedded that it required several officers to remove it. Alfred Potter said he had never seen a dead body before. As his evidence came to an end, Potter was asked by the coroner if there was anything he could add to help explain what had happened. Potter said he could not. Alfred Potter said he knew of no reason why Charles Walton had been killed. I never had a row with any man. I never went to him once in a fortnight. He went on with his work. I trusted him, Potter said. Chief Inspector Fabian was asked if he had any questions. He noted to the coroner that the accounts the witness had given were inconsistent. When Potter spoke with officers three days after Charles Walton's body was found... He said that he went straight to rescue the heifer out of a ditch after feeding the cattle. Potter was asked which version of the events was correct. He said it was the account he had just given that was truly what had happened. When asked by the coroner if he was disturbed when he discovered the body, Potter said, I was very cut up. 
The witness was again asked if he knew of anyone that might hold a grudge against Charles Walton. He said he did not. Potter explained that he did not see anyone else in his field, and there was nothing he could think of that might attract a passerby. There was nothing there, nothing more than a few rabbits. Based on the medical evidence available, and Professor Webster telling the inquest jury that the wounds were almost certainly inflicted by another party, a verdict of murder was returned. There was, however, no evidence offered to enable the inquest to identify the person or people responsible. By the first week of April 1945, with no suspects, the police issued a picture of a pocket watch similar to the one Charles Walton was likely carrying in his waistcoat pocket on the day he died. The public were told if they had any information on the watch's location, they could either contact Stratford-upon-Avon police or report it to any other station who would gladly pass the message on. But both the watch and Charles's killer remained elusive. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. With the passing of time, Theories surrounding the motive for the murder continued to swirl, and the mystery of the missing watch was replaced by something altogether more mysterious. During September 1950, over five years since Charles Walton's murder, Egyptologist Dr Margaret Murray, a specialist in writing about folklore and witches, considered Walton's murder a human sacrifice. And it was not only his death which she believed was related to devil worship, as she described it. Murray considered the body of an unidentified female found inside a tree trunk in Hagley Wood on April 18, 1943, to also be a victim of a ritualistic killing. Found by four young boys on the grounds of Hagley Estate in Worcestershire, it was believed the woman had died sometime in 1941. The remains were examined and constituted nearly a full skeleton. The remnants of a human hand were found some distance away. Dr Margaret Murray said, I believe she was another victim of the devil worshippers. Like Walton, her body was found in an isolated place. A year after the discovery of the mystery woman's body, strange graffiti appeared in Birmingham, close to the location where the body was found. It referred to the woman found in the tree trunk as Bella. The species of tree was a witch elm. Speaking to a reporter for the Birmingham Daily Gazette, Murray, a former professor and then a fellow of University College London, voiced her belief that there were still individuals who practiced witchcraft in isolated parts of Britain. Murray claimed they had been responsible for the deaths of not just Bella, as she came to be known, but Charles Walton as well. The doctor had formed the opinion due to the, quote, peculiar way in which he had been killed. She said, the sacrifices are carried out by people who still believe in a religion practiced before Christianity, whom we call devil worshippers. They still practice black magic. The belief is that if life is taken out of the ground through farming, it must be replaced by a blood sacrifice. I am not interested in the murder, only in the witches. 
I think it was a murder without normal motive. No money was missing, and there was no other reason why the old man should have been killed. He died in February, one of the four months of the year when sacrifices are carried out. Dr. Margaret Murray had travelled to Lower Quinton and spoke with its residents. She regaled the children with fairy stories and made sketches of local landmarks. Murray was allowed to review the police files and photographic evidence. Superintendent Alex Spooner of Warwickshire CID, who had been involved in the initial inquiry into Charles Walton's death and continued to work the case, was even consulting with Dr. Margaret Murray. He was determined to find out what had happened, keeping an open mind to any and all possibilities. Chief Inspector Fabian had since retired. He had spent three months in the village of Quinton, although he had never managed to solve the riddle of who killed Charles, in spite of the 4,000 statements taken and over three dozen items of clothing and forensic samples retrieved for analysis. Fabian would go on to recount his time with Scotland Yard in a book, which in part covered Charles Walton's murder. Titled Fabian of the Yard, one chapter recounted the superstition and challenges the investigation faced, as villagers feared talking to the police about the murder. As he went door to door, many spoke of their troubles farming, but offered little in the way of evidence that would help with the investigation. Chief Inspector Fabian described how when he arrived, greeted by the other officers on the case, he was asked what the suspected motive was. Superintendent Alex Spooner did not answer straight away. Instead, he handed Fabian a book that was produced in 1929. It was titled Folklore Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land, written by the rector of Whitchurch, the Reverend James Harvey Bloom. The chief inspector read that some 70 years before Charles Walton's murder, on September 15th, 1875, a similar attack had occurred on an 80-year-old woman called Anne Tennant. She was brutally killed with a pitchfork by a local man, James Hayward, who had shouted that he was going to kill all 16 of the witches in Long Compton, located about 13 miles south of Lower Quinton. An article from the Stamford Mercury dated September 24, 1875, repeated in part across a number of other local newspapers, described the events. The short article read as follows. A strange murder was committed at Long Compton, Warwickshire Village, about four miles from Chipping Norton on Wednesday the 15th, the victim being an old woman named Anne Tennant, aged 80, the wife of a small dealer. James Hayward, a farm labourer about 40 years of age, was returning home from work Wednesday evening with his father-in-law and lad, 
and met the old woman coming from the village bakers with a loaf. He ran up to her and with his pitchfork he was carrying, stabbed her several times in both legs and afterwards hit her about the head with the handle of the fork. Mr Taylor, a farmer living near, hearing the screams of the woman, ran to the spot and seized Hayward. The woman was picked up and carried to the house of her daughter a few yards distant and a doctor was called, but she died shortly afterwards. On being taken into custody, the prisoner said to the constable, I hope she's dead. She was an old witch. There are fifteen more in the village. I'll serve the same. I mean to kill them all. A few days ago, I was three hours in a bean field and could not work, as they had witched me. When in the cell at Shipston, he called the superintendent to him and told him that the water he had was full of witches. At the inquest, several of the witnesses deposed that the accused laboured under the delusion that he was haunted with witches. But in other respects, he was quite rational and from youth had been engaged as a farm labourer. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder against Hayward, and he was committed for trial at Warwick Assizes. While this awful state of affairs appeared to be nothing more than a strange, albeit tragic, coincidence in which the killer used a similar method to dispatch their victim, Fabian believed his investigation to be under a dark cloud. At one point early on in the inquiry, Fabian recalled seeing a black dog passing him on Meon Hill. When a young farmhand appeared, his boots heavied by the mud he was working in, Fabian asked if the dog was his, assuming the young man was chasing after it. Puzzled, the farmhand asked what exactly the chief inspector was referring to. The black dog, the inspector said. The young man before him had a worried look in his eyes before he walked off without providing an answer. The dog did not reappear. Superintendent Spooner, who was with Fabian at the time, told the chief inspector of one of the tales in the book he had handed Fabian. Coincidentally, one of the stories spoke of an individual who had shared his name with the very man who had been murdered only days earlier. During nine consecutive nights in 1885, a young farmhand called Charles Walton had seen the apparition of a black dog on his way home from work or so the story goes. The final time he saw the dog, the animal was joined by a headless woman dressed in a black silk dress. The following day, the young Charles Walton was told that his sister had died. Was this the same Charles Walton? Again, this appeared to the chief inspector to be nothing more than coincidence mixed with a very tall tale. Still, following the sighting of the black dog by Fabian, numerous instances of misfortune plagued the investigation, or at least it seemed bad luck followed them everywhere they went. 
a heifer in a nearby field died after it was trapped in a ditch. A police car accidentally ran over one of the villagers' dogs, and some witnesses who the police had spoken to soon became ill. One by one, the villagers began to feel uneasy, and slowly none would speak up. A great deal of speculation suggested that the villagers suspected that someone affiliated with witchcraft or the occult was responsible for Charles Walton's murder, a killing the press described as the witchcraft murder. Charles Walton was a man with few friends, but he was well-liked. He was quiet, choosing to keep himself to himself. He had never lived outside Lower Quinton. Rumours began to circulate as the tale of his life grew in the telling. He was said to have a knack with animals. By all accounts, he was able to calm dogs with just the sound of his voice tame horses, and have wild birds eating from the palm of his hand. Although it is worth bearing in mind that Charles had worked outside all of his life. Was he really the young man in the story who saw a dog accompanied by a headless woman? Did he have a sister who died when he was young? It is unlikely in spite of the countless number of people who sought answers as to who Charles was and who killed him, no one has ever managed to solve the puzzle. So where are we now? A combination of a brutal unsolved murder and the speculation that this could be a ritual killing only increase the speculation that surrounds this case, even today. The salaciousness of the news report saw Detective Chief Inspector Fabian become a celebrity. A popular TV show based on his memoirs and almost three decades with the force was called Fabian of the Yard, which ran from 1954 until 1956. Superintendent Alex Spooner of Warwickshire CID continued to visit Lower Quinton every year on Valentine's Day, at the very spot at the foot of Meon Hill. He had hoped a local might recall a detail otherwise forgotten to time that could have cracked the case. In August 1960, a pocket watch similar to the one that had disappeared was reportedly found by workmen making alterations to what was Charles Walton's cottage. It appeared the watch may have been left in a shed by Charles Walton himself, or police pondered whether the killer had stolen the timepiece, but later returned it when they realised the importance it held in the inquiry. 
Investigators from Warwickshire CID spoke of their frustrations due to the passage of time. Sadly, an officer working the case said, It is very doubtful whether it will be possible to make a definite identification. Markings that had been engraved in code were said to be scratched into the metal by the previous owner. However, they could not be verified. The previous owner had since passed away. There have been copious theories about what happened that day on the slopes of Meon Hill. Some are convinced it was a ritual killing, and others believe it was just down to money. Numerous articles written decades later reference a cross being cut on Charles's chest. However, there is no mention of this in the initial press reports, nor did Fabian detail it to either the press or in his writings. Subsequent articles written sometime after the crime described Charles's neck being slashed in a cross shape, although there is no way of knowing whether this was intentional or not. It is possible this feature of the case slowly changed over time. The chief suspect, according to most, still remains Alfred Potter, due in part to his behaviour and his changing accounts of where he was at the time of Charles's death. One such incident relates to when he was told the police planned to lift fingerprints from the slash hook and pitchfork. This was six days after Charles was murdered. Potter had neglected to mention that he had touched the makeshift weapons, and he had not thought to tell police of this detail when he was first interviewed. Also, there was an investigation regarding a wages dispute filed at Furs Farm by the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries. Frustratingly, this information was never publicly released even to Chief Inspector Fabian. Furthermore, PC Lamazny found Alfred Potter's behaviour odd when he was in the presence of the farmer following the discovery of Charles's body. Lamazny thought Potter would be more hardened to the sight of a dead body, considering the number of animals Potter would have slaughtered. Potter was inconsolable. None of this, however, points directly to Alfred Potter's guilt. Charles Walton and his employer had no history of quarrelling. By all accounts, Potter had never revealed the violent side to anyone. Alfred Potter's involvement is yet another rabbit hole in a case that has baffled curious parties in their search for answers as to what happened on Valentine's Day 1945. As the years rolled by in the late 1960s, several villagers were again interviewed. The locals had remained silent when initially approached by the press for comment. Gossip and rumour had swirled around Lower Quinton. Perhaps residents were terrified of supernatural repercussions when discussing a murder that might relate to witchcraft. Author Donald McCormick re-examined the events. 
details of which were published in the Birmingham Daily Post. Again, some locals chose not to speak about what happened. However, other villagers did and said that yes, they agreed. Locals had been reluctant to talk. But when questioned about the wall of silence and the suspected connection to the supernatural, their answer suggested they were not entirely convinced. A local farmer said, It was simply because they didn't want to get mixed up in the affair. Nothing else. Witchcraft? Don't make me laugh. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.